0: Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like where are you from, there was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 11, Exiled. In Carver, Mass., a war raged on at places like the breakfast table where, without warning, a cutting board with a red rooster on it would come smacking against my head. It would hit me because I didn't do it right, but it was so elusive and somewhere so far over the rainbow that I would never get it right. This nameless war raged on as my mother held her infant child in one hand and pushed me down a flight of stairs with the other. I fell in slow motion somersaults, head and knees banging on each step. Once I hit the bottom landing, I lay silent and confused, curled up in the fetal position. I looked up at her and her new baby, the one that she treated with so much tender love and care. I took this as a personal insult, but I knew it wouldn't last long, and I felt sorry for the kid. His day was going to come. In the grandest gesture of delusion, Diana had the nerve to carry me into the emergency room. I couldn't imagine why she would bother or even be so concerned. She and Tony were trying to kill me, so why not just get the job done? The nurses put me in a paper dress and sat me on a metal gurney. I felt awkward and exposed, half-naked and colored up with the markings of an abused child. I let myself have a brief moment of hope that maybe somebody would notice the truth and take me away from my mother. In my mind, this was my best chance to escape, and I needed to get the doctor on my side. But I was up against the master manipulator, and she instantly bore right into the doctor with her charm and off-handedness. It's no big deal, she told him. Because of her deformed knees, Tina's an awkward and clumsy child. It made so much sense that she almost had me believing her. I was a clumsy child, but not today, and not because of my knees. My blood began to boil with the injustice of her lies, and I wanted to scream to anyone who would listen, no, 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 no. She pushed me. Shouldn't there be something wrong with that? But no one listened, because no one cared. It wasn't their business. In those days, children were supposed to be seen and not heard. And in those days, we were barely even seen. Back at the haunted house on the Cranberry bogs, while doing chores like nothing ever happened, my mind wandered into the future. When I grow up, I want to be a waitress or a junkie. Both options seemed glamorous and liberating, and of course I knew what a waitress was, but the word junkie just popped into my head. I had no idea what it meant, but the word reminded me of the girl in New Bedford, the one with the crooked teeth, the one I had a crush on. She seemed cool and edgy and sophisticated, just like what I thought a junkie might be. Diana had always called me a slut, a whore, and a prostitute, but it got even worse after she found the love letter that I had written to my new crush, one of the migrant workers who lived in the sharecropper shacks. It was on that day that she hit me with the red rooster cutting board, but only after she went on a long and perverted diatribe describing all the sex acts I was engaging in. I'd never heard of any of them and most sounded disgusting and even nauseating. I turned every shade of red, embarrassed as my sisters and brother looked at me with shock and amused disgust. I felt dirty and guilty as charged, but I wasn't guilty, and she was nothing but a liar. My crush and I were just friendly with each other. There were no kisses and no touching because the poor guy didn't even speak English. She found the note in my dresser drawer at the beginning of summer vacation, whereupon, after the exercise in humiliation, she sent me to my room to think about my actions. I felt the dread of a long hot summer bearing down on my depleted soul and I missed my school and all of my teachers more than anything. I spent the whole day in my room until Diana came upstairs to get me. She told me that we were going to have a family meeting. Something in her attitude filled me with suspicion and a bit of worry. When I entered the living room, The whole family was seated on the couch and on the floor and I was placed in front of them as if to recite my latest poem or to die by firing squad. Without beating around the bush, Diana said in a tone of utter resolve and finality, you are no longer a part of the family and you will be spending the summer locked in your room until we figure out what to do with you. I just stood there stunned. My first thought was, what'd she just say? But I didn't ask her to repeat herself. I must have looked like an idiot standing up there on display for what seemed like an eternity while I tried to make sense of her callous and unbelievable words. I repeated each word to myself over and over again. You are no longer A. Part. Of. The. Family. When the meaning finally sunk in, I thought, Really? That's all it takes? You can just say those words and that makes it true? I wondered if this was even legal. There was silence as the whole family stared at me. I was still standing, but I could have sworn I fell to the floor. A glaze formed over my eyes, and in an instant, I felt like a stranger. That's how they were looking at me, like a complete stranger. Not the oldest daughter, not a care. Babies don't see ugly anyway. My place of incarceration wasn't a good time room like the one in New Bedford. No, this one was empty except for a mattress, one white sheet, and a large tin can that once held sliced peaches. The room had a southern exposure and was bright and sunny and hot all day. Not a curtain, not a window shade. The door was latched from the outside and was opened twice a day, once to empty the can and once to receive my meals on a tray. I kept the can in the closet, which was missing its door, trying to distance myself from the cooking stench of my own excrement. When the smell wouldn't stop, I held the sheet over my nose or kept my face pressed against the window screen. There was no real difference between number one and number two. They both stank. It was my responsibility to clean out the can in the same upstairs bathroom where I had the epiphany that I would grow up to be a waitress and or a junkie. And although it was a disgusting chore, it was something that I looked forward to. I needed the change of pace. It was a chance to get out of my room and set my sore eyes on different sights. I could feel every molecule in my body expand with each liberating step I took out of the room. Free at last, but only for a minute. I felt sorry for my sister Kathy. She was the one who had to bring my food up to me every night and I could tell she was embarrassed. I wanted to tell her that it wasn't her fault, this queer reality that our mother had created for us. But our relationship had always been awkward, and we shifted from foot to foot, stumbling over words that weren't there. Those implicit words cried out silently as she relocked the latch to my door and went back downstairs to rejoin the rest of the family. I stared out the window every day, looking for excitement and waiting for something to change. But we were surrounded by nature, a slow-moving nature. The sky would put on the occasional show, and the trees would dance, and the wind would sing, but it was never enough for me. One day I got lucky, because the landscape had finally changed. Diana's new baby was lying in a bassinet right under my window. I was extremely excited to have another human being on which to focus my attention. I listened very carefully to every goo and gah, as if the baby were telling me a story. I was engrossed by the chubby little hands trying to stick its chubby little feet into its mouth so engrossed that I didn't hear the sound of someone furiously stomping up the stairs behind me. I jolted off my knees and out of the window when I heard the door to my bedroom slam open. Diana looked like she was going to crush me with her bare hands. She screamed at the top of her lungs, Get your ugly fucking face out of the window and stop looking at my baby. I don't want him to see or know your ugly, disgusting face. She stormed out of the room, slamming and relocking the door. I may have cried, but I don't remember. My emotions never knew what to do anymore. Who should I be mad at? Her? Me? The baby? It was so entertaining to watch him. He was so innocent and unaware, in a world of his own, kind of like me. But now she had taken that away. She wanted me to believe that one glance in my direction would ruin the kid for life. But that was stupid, and she was stupid, because babies don't see ugly anyway. I collapsed on the mattress, lost in a fog, my body hurting as much as my mind. I needed some place to go and something to do, so I invented a fantasy for myself. But this time, it wasn't a distant magical land or an underground lair. It was a real-life story, which I played out in my head every single day. I created a new family for myself, but it wasn't a normal family. It was more like a group of unrelated people who lived in a big house and called themselves a family. I never focused on who they were or what they did. They were just somewhere in the background living a carefree lifestyle. I imagined how cute I was and how tamed my frizzy curls had become. I wore cut off shorts, my knees were normal, and I went barefoot all the time. I lived a blissful life and my face was lit up with a perpetual smile. There was one innocuous scene that I replayed every day. There was absolutely nothing to it, and yet it made me feel the freest. The doorbell rings on a calm and sunny day. I answer it without a care in the world. I'm eating a radish, which is strange because I hate radishes. It's the mailman delivering a package. I accept it casually, say thank you, and close the door. I was roused out of this fantasy one day by the smell of smoke and the sound of children screaming. A frenzied commotion had started on the first floor and the odor was so strong that I could only assume the house was on fire. I started yelling and begging for Kathy or someone to please come and unlock my door. All the while a nervous gas was building up in my belly and I paced around the room furiously like a caged lion, antsy with the sense of impending danger. Ever since the fire in Cleveland, any smell of smoke from an unknown source would put my hairs on end and reduce me to a state of panic. Finally, Kathy came and stood outside my door. She told me that the stove was on fire, but she couldn't unlock the door. Diana had told her not to. My heart sank in a pool of betrayal, and then my sister left me. Is this what they really wanted me to be? Dead? I looked out the second floor window trying to decide if I had the courage to jump, but I decided to wait until the very last minute when the urgency of fire would push me out the window. I didn't want to think about it. I just wanted to do it. I waited and listened for some sort of clue as to what was going on in the kitchen, but nothing happened. There were no firemen, flames, or smoke inhalation, and the commotion died down just as quickly as it had flared up. The only thing I heard outside my room was an eerie silence. I couldn't stop shaking. Nothing scared me more than fire, and I was glad to be alive. But I wondered how long that would last. I didn't know what happened outside my room that day, but I knew what happened inside. My soul curled up into a little hard ball, just like a potato bug would do right before my brother Tony dropped it into a can of boiling water. It was the beginning of August, and I had been locked in my room for two months. On the 27th of that month, I would be turning 10 years old. Out of the blue, Diana came upstairs and told me that someone was on the phone for me. It was such an absurd notion that I didn't believe her. I was afraid to follow her because I was sure this was a trick. But it was true. There was someone on the phone for me. And when I put the receiver to my ear, a man's voice said, Hi, Tina. How are you? This is Gorton from Fayetteville. Do you remember me? My mind started racing, trying to figure out exactly who he was. I remembered his name, but I couldn't picture his face. He reminded me that he was the owner of the Way It Is restaurant in Arkansas, and he asked me if I would like to come live with him in Fayetteville for a while. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Was this for real? I doubted every word of it because I was sure that Diana was up to one of her head games. Gorton was looking for an answer, but I didn't know what to say. I looked down at my feet to hide my face, just in case I couldn't control the shadow of excitement that was washing over me. With extreme caution, zero passion, and a whole lot of trepidation, I replied, yeah, I guess so. Is that what my parents want? Gorton said, yup, we're going to give it a try. Our conversation was short and sweet. No chit-chat, no getting to know each other. It was more like a business call. I wondered who this guy was and why he wanted me. And none of it made sense because I hardly even knew him. But if it got me out of this house, then fine. I'd go anywhere." My happy little heart was brimming with anticipation. I was going to get out of here, but I dared not show it. I still thought this whole thing was a trick, and I suspected that if I acted too excited about moving, Diana would say, "'See there? You're an ungrateful bastard child who doesn't love her family.' And just for that, you're going to get a beating, no food, and you're going to live in your room forever. Back up in my bedroom, where the heat of August ignited the stench of the can and kept me sick to my stomach for days, I waited and waited. I waited so long that I forgot about Gordon and the phone call. I guess I was right. It was a trick, a cruel and unusual trick and I wasn't going anywhere. One day, no different from the rest, I lay in my bed thinking about the island of misfit toys, somewhere over the rainbow, and Pippi Longstocking's Island. I was so lost in thought that I didn't hear the soft patter of Paul's docile footsteps on the stairs. But I did hear the door open and Paul stood looking at me as if we were going to the zoo. Today's the day, he said. We've got to get to the airport. Nobody else was home. It was just me and Paul in a suitcase. I sat in the back seat of the car and Paul shut the door from the outside. I looked at the house to see if any faces would appear in the windows, but nope. There weren't any faces and there weren't any goodbyes. We drove slowly in silence down the dirt road, past the blooming red bogs and the dancing green trees. Paul seemed sad, but I couldn't be sure. We'd been through a lot together and I still didn't know him very well. As a stepfather, he'd always been a little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing. And nothing was what I needed him to be today.